Hey gang, thank you for listening to this very unique and special bonus episode of The Hustle. We are welcoming back our first third time returnee guest, and it's the great Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. This conversation is very, I don't quite know how to describe it actually, because first of all, he's promoting a new book that's coming out. It's going to be published this summer called Silent Singing. It's a book of lyrics. And the book is going to feature handwritten lyrics, stories that accompany the songs, never before seen photos, much like that book that we talked about with him a year or two ago, The Ballad of Jethro Tull. You can pre-order it now and get your name in the book and everything. So we were going to talk about that. And then we were also going to deep dive the Jethro Tull album A. You may remember that. It's the pinkish one with him wearing the white, everyone in the white jumpsuits. Because that is the deluxe 40th anniversary edition of A, I think just came out this weekend. So we were going to talk about the book, do a deep dive of A, but the conversation ended up just being sort of all over the place. We talk about, as it is with Ian Anderson, we talk about European history, we talk about politics, we talk about his health. It's a little bit of everything. In fact, you're listening right here to Working John, Working Joe, which was the second single off of A. So it's a little bit of everything in this conversation, but of course we love Ian over here, as everyone knows, and we're really grateful that he gave us some time. Uh, hope you guys enjoy this. Okay, well for starters, let's talk about the uh, silent singing book coming out that's going to be published this summer. Uh, it's interesting to me that this was kind of, you have stayed very busy during lockdown where a lot of people are doing who knows what, but it was that when the idea to publish a lyric book came to you no it's uh, it's uh, an idea that i have had for a few years and last year given that there was uh, little prospect of doing concerts i started serious work on it in june and uh, got it pretty much all finished not obviously working in one unbroken period of time but you know spending two or three days a week, just going through every single song I've ever recorded and painstakingly transcribing it all because many of the lyrics that have appeared on album covers are, you know, have typos or maybe not quite reflecting exactly what I sang on the day due to somebody typing up the lyrics, perhaps from my original notes or transcribing it themselves. And and I take responsibility. I should have checked it all absolutely meticulously and didn't but you know there are a few errors there and then of course the actual layout of it the punctuation the the grammar the the way that it's presented on the page required a lot of thought and the application of some consistency throughout the uh, 350 songs or whatever it is Uh so that it it joined together in a stylistic way uh, plus, of course, a lot of stuff to write about the process of songwriting, the the kind of songs that I tend to write and why I write them, and then album by album, a few notes. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of work, and and then of course a lot of work on photography because I illustrated one song from each album with a photograph that I had taken, and uh, some taken a while ago, some 
uh, taken specially for the book, but encapsulating a visual representation that for me was close to the picture I had in my head when I wrote the song, because I, I am a songwriter who works usually from some visual reference memory rather than photographs, but, um, you know, that's the way that it works. So it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a sudden new idea. It was just, Oh, well, I've had to, had to postpone another week of touring. So I might as well try and do something with my time. And, uh, that's part of what I did with my ever increasing time during the months of last year from March onwards. Got it. Uh, one thing I was curious about, do do lyrics ever evolve over time? And what I mean by that is when you're writing the lyrics and recording a song, uh, that's one thing. But then a few years later or whenever you're out there on the road performing this song and you find that that and or that the or whatever is no longer necessary. Do you ever trim the fat like that when you perform? Occasionally. And then sometimes little little elements get added in the odd Mm -hmm. expression but it's it's not fundamentally changing and i think usually there's quite a good reason for having it the way that it was and i i don't very often change Mm -hmm. the lyrics because i think i have a better way to express it there are occasions when i have changed the lyrics because of it being a a presentation of the song in a specific context like when i did the rock opera Jethro Tull, the rock opera in 2016, there were some elements of songs that got changed because they had to fit the, the sequential narrative that, that, that was indeed the, 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 the concept behind that, that stage show. But generally speaking, I don't change them intentionally, but I'm sure right. the odd little thing, you know, right. it's more likely to be putting in some not terribly important bit of verbal punctuation that is more than more than just a a comma yeah or an exclamation it. mark it, it it can be a a grunt a groan a, a yeah a no a yes a whatever it might be so sometimes that happens but um right okay um i i i usually try to be a bit sparing with that sort of stuff when i record but it did creep in in the studio quite often I think comparing some of my original notes when I had original notes for a song, I did notice that when I came to sing it live, I had added uh, some little bit of verbal decoration and I almost always included that in the updated lyrics because I felt that's what people would hear when they listen to the song again and they would be quick to pick me up if I didn't accurately represent the the bulk of it but as i explain in the book sometimes i do leave those things out when they become a bit tiresome uh, or repetitive and so forgive me for you know making that very deliberate occasional change but that's part of what this, this this book is about i'm trying to explain to people how i go about it what the process is what the what the editing process is in your own mind when you're writing and then again when it comes to performing it in the studio and I, I try to explain all of these things in the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I uh, I was curious too if you find that some of your lyrics haven't aged well or um, don't you know aren't don't hold up. And the reason I mention that is because we're going to talk about a and I got my 40th anniversary version in the mail recently, and I was looking over the uh, reading the book about it stuff like that. The track uniform on there mentioned you were saying there was a quote in the book that accompanies a about how you couldn't really get away with saying something like silly people in white sheets or whatever the line was in the song when you go comb back over your lyrics do you find things that make you wince a little bit like oh i could have done better there occasionally i do uh i think the the number of those occasions is is not that great but there are clearly times that something would be seen as challenging political correctness in the modern world. I think we always have to see these things in the context of when they were written. And if you were to go back and try and make the the Bible politically correct and, (laughs) um, you know, clean up some of the vengeance and nastiness and retribution and jealousies and, uh, you know, then, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. In some cases in the Old Testament, there wouldn't be a lot of chapters left. You know? That's true. It, um, <laughs> so you always have to see things in that context. And yeah. I don't necessarily think it makes it okay, for example, if we're talking about the uh, Alabama March, you know, um, back in the, the 60s to refer to, for you or I to refer to niggers that that yeah. you know still wouldn't be okay right. but it might be okay if a black person talking in that time or about that time might have might have used that word then i, th- I guess we have to forgive that uh, perhaps a typical example from a white perspective would be a referring to colored people as uh, negroes or even the negro and that's would not be acceptable today, but it was in general usage. You know, cer- certainly back in the 60s, it, yeah. it was the general term. And it wasn't, I, I don't think it came with any um, negative or no. bad blood behind it. It just was the accepted term. And these days, you know, there is actually no term. If you refer to people as being colored, that offends some of them. If you refer to people being black, that offends a lot of people who say, well, hang on a minute, I am actually not black, I am I am Asian, um, and, and, and I'm lumped in with, with black people, and in fact, I'm just a delicate shade of brown. You know, we, there is no easy route out of here, you know, in terms of how do you describe people of different ethnicity. I mean, the only thing that we do seem to accept is being called white, and, you know, even, even after a you know, even after a weekend in the summer sun, I am no longer white. <laughs> Although if I, you know, if I peel my knickers off right now, it does look like some kind of, um, you know, pale pasta. It, right. um, you know, it's, it's, it may not seem perhaps that important, but it is from a writing perspective. How do you put this into print? Or perhaps even into a public interview when you know you're going to offend some people. And I I have wrestled with that a couple of times in things that I've written or in interviews that I've done uh, to to find a way that I think is going to be acceptable. But quite often in trying to be acceptable, it actually looks as if you are, you know, so politically correct that it would... I'm sure Donald Trump had a word for it. I can't remember what it was, but you know, it, it was something that, that people pour scorn on when you try to be diplomatic. Perhaps that's the word that I'm really going to hang on to is I think diplomacy is appropriate from all people all of the time when they're talking about other people of different ethnicity, religious belief, or subdivisions of society. I think diplomacy, you, you should yeah. be a little bit delicate in the way you describe things, but that doesn't necessarily make for great lyric writing that, um, you know, maybe you do want to be a little more punchy and, and uh, um, perhaps tread that, that, uh, that um, shaky tightrope between soaring above the, the sentiments of other people and then right. perhaps crashing to your horrible death if uh, people right. decide that that's not acceptable and they're going to cancel you or whatever True. the word currently yeah. is. So sure, there are things I've I've said in lyrics and you know, I wouldn't think it would be appropriate to, to um, write a song today called Fat Man. And right. a lot of American people <laughs> back then song. thought that Fat Man was a reference to the bomb that was, well, you know, Little little Boy and Fat Man were the two atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Some people thought it was a reference to that. Whereas, in fact, it was me having a little joke at the expense of our then guitar player, Mick Abrahams, who was inclined to put on weight quite easily. And um, and I rather jokingly made this... this uh, this song up and it wasn't about him it was just that's what triggered it if you like but i'm i'm not being you know what it might it might sound i'm ridiculing uh people of obesity i in fact it the, the words of the song you know are actually supporting the 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 fat man in the song it's, it's you know it's the the fat man who wins the day in the you know, in, a, in some curious way, but it, right. uh, I, I, I don't think I very often have been cruel or merciless or no. 
really scurrilous in references even the song my god which refers to the bloody church of england it's it's bloody because it has like all the world's religions it has blood on its hands it has been responsible not directly as a religious belief but through the people who manifest that belief in actions that that are you know very often uh, pretty um, uh, aggressive and nasty so i'm i'm singing very knowingly the bloody church of england think thinking of the uh, of uh, certain acts on behalf of christianity the crusades for example the uh, um the spanish inquisition <laughs> this right. this a lot of bad stuff goes on but you know with the ex- possible exception of buddhism then uh, <laughs> pretty much every religion has got something to answer That's for true. in terms of its adherents and its believers carrying out despicable acts that yeah. you know very often are not intrinsic in the religious belief it's just it just ends up being that way. So, well, you know what else too? I was thinking about this. <laughs> Ian Anderson's refusal to write uh, love songs uh, means that you, a lot of the content of your music is uh, almost always historical, especially on A. I mean, there's songs about you know releasing Iranian. It was the embassy in London, and it was yes, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a siege where hostages were taken, that's it. Hosti- and it ended that's up with, with our SAS, our special forces, live right. on television, um, <laughs> going in there and and managing to get everybody out. And um, yeah. so it it was a it was a current news story. I mean, it was it right. it, it, it is historical now. It's a historical sure. event. But at the time I wrote it, it was something that I'd just seen on television that that day. You know, right. So it, right. So I mean, I'm I am acting as a almost like a like a photojournalist. I'm taking exactly. visual images and yes. and putting the words to explain them. That's what I was going to say. Protect and survive is about nuclear a nuclear war pamphlet was the inspiration. Um, batteries right. not included. Kids getting Christmas presents with they don't include batteries, so their presents are kind of useless. If you're going to record, if you're going to report on history like a photojournalist, like you mentioned, then things are going to continue to evolve. I mean, we're talking about songs that were written 41 years ago, so things change, you know. Well, they they may well change, but the scenarios often repeat and repeat. Uh, when we're writing so a song about homeless people, then that's as pertinent today as it was uh, when I wrote Aqualung 50 years ago. If you take the uh, the embassy siege as an example, well, hostage taking and hostage scenarios that they're playing out, if not every day somewhere in the world, it seems every week there's another similar scenario, and it, uh, um, you know, the, the, these these ideas, these notions do tend to repeat. So they don't, they're not locked into time in the way that. Poor old Scott McKenzie, having written, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure <laughs> to wear some flowers in your hair. You know, that is really tied into a particular moment, whereas uh, I'm, I'm not sure that most of my songs would be uh, limited to only one particular moment. There is a moment that describes them, that puts them in context, but I, I think most of them tend to be applicable in a rather more ageless way. It's true. Very true. Um, okay, let's talk about A for a minute, because... This is most people, maybe they know, maybe they don't, but this was uh, originally intended as an Ian solo album, and Chrysalis Records asked you to change it to a Jethro Tull album, even though I think three-fifths of of that band helped you record it and perform it. What I see this album as, and you mentioned this in the book that comes along with the A Deluxe Edition, is that your bursting out live album sort of you see as the end of the Zenith peak period of Jethro Tull and the rest is sort of a new era and I totally agree with that and you listen to A and even Stormwatch but especially things that come after like your solo album Walk Into Light there's like even passages on Walk Into Light that remind me of the Human League and that's the furthest thing you would think from a Jethro Tull album or an Ian Anderson album how were you embracing modern technology at the time were you okay with less folk less Elizabethan, less, you know, harpsichords and more synthesizers? Or did you kind of go into that kicking and screaming? If you go back to Thick as a Brick in 1972, you will hear 
the uh, ARP Odyssey, uh, one of the, the, the first production synthesizers that was ever produced. And uh, that, that appears um, along with a pitch-to-voltage converter. When I played my flute through that uh, device, creating a, a synthesis of a note that wasn't anything, didn't sound like a flute at all. It was a monophonic synthesizer. It sounded like a really bad, you know, poor cousin of the Mini Moog. And uh, Jethro Tull in the 70s played with uh, our two keyboard players, played electronic instruments, different forms of synthesizer and different forms of uh, electronica. Not so much John Evans, who tended to stick to piano and organ, but uh, uh, David Palmer, as he was then, these days D. Palmer, was quick to take up the use of those instruments because they could conjure up pseudo orchestral sounds and being an orchestral arranger that that suited the work that uh, the then he did on stage with Jethro Tull. So we were not in any way strangers to using technology. And by the time we we got into the by 1981, there was a quite a use of the evolving technology of analog synthesis and by 1982 the very beginnings of the first digital sequencers and uh, by 83 we were seeing the first digital sampling so it you either ignore all of that and just bury your head in a world of 100 watt marshall stacks and fender <laughs> telecasters and gibson les pauls and pretend the rest of the world is not evolving around you or you give it a go and see what that technology might do for you and the answer is in most cases not a busting amount but it was something to experiment with and see how it could be usable within the context of the band arrangements of songs that i had written so i like many other people, I, I utilized what was there. But it it was, you know, by, by the time you got to um, 1984, that would probably be the time when it would seem that we were most reliant on that technology being to the fore. But in fact, the only thing really that is that is uh, electronic about it in that sense is, is that it was a drum machine, a programmed, you know, electronic drums. And uh, everything else was played live in the studio with real people, real instruments. It wasn't it wasn't some, you know, copy and paste put together album of, of electronic noises and bits and bobs. Right. It was still a very much a, a, a live performance album. But it has a sound about it, which perhaps uh, because of the drums makes it sound. I think you buy into it straight away. That this is a very electronic recording. You know, it, it, it is in part, but not in large part. And I think once you get beyond that 84 era, most of the time you're hearing conventional rock band music and played, usually rehearsed pretty live in the studio or in a rehearsal room and then recorded in the way that we'd rehearsed it. So mm -hmm. it, it's most of the time. You know, we, we are, relatively speaking, quite a live band in the studio. And that extends to music that was recorded more recently that's, as of yet, not released. And, and that was done in that way. The guys are all in the studio together playing live. Okay. Uh, something I was curious, too, when I was thinking about what some of your prog colleagues were doing around this time, you have the guys forming supergroups like Asia or GTR. You have Terry Bozio, who you had been working with going and doing Missing Persons, Yes is streamlining their sound with Trevor Horn. Was it ever, so I guess my question is, did you ever think about sort of going a poppier route like them? Or when you're doing songs like Steel Monkey, is this you thinking you're doing the same thing? You're just doing it with your spin. I, I don't really um, very often think in terms of what is commercially mm viable I, I just follow my nose i i'm i'm i've never really been very good at deliberately writing mm. attractive music in the sense that it would grab people on first or second listening i, I it's not something i've i mean i feel very self-conscious trying to do that so i've not done it very often and on the occasions that i have done it they've 
usually have resulted in songs that I'm, you know, they're, they're, they're not amongst my favorites. Mm. They seem too deliberate and too contrived. So it's not, not something I tend to think about. But, you know, Steel Monkey was just me playing around with a sequencer and mm. I suppose borrowing some of the the musical elements that ZZ Top had worked mm, on, you know, with, yeah. with kind of big power chords and, and a sequencer running in the background. and But, yeah, I wasn't really thinking, well, we're gonna, this, this is a hit single or whatever. Mm. It was just another song on the album that, okay. that, that perhaps had a bit more immediacy to it than, than others, and yeah. it happened to be a fairly short piece. I mean, I'd done an original mix of it, and then the record company suggested maybe we should try to make it a little more accessible in terms of radio play. And I turned the tapes over to a producer, engineer in a, in a studio and said, you know, do what you like with it. See, see what you can, um, how you, how you, how you get on with this. So he, he added quite a lot of compression on a number of instruments and used the, the drum track to trigger uh, some sample drums, which had this kind of fat and compressed sound. It, it, and you know, the the mix of it was, um, I guess, a little bit more commercial sounding than 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 I had originally done. Mm. But uh, you know, I I don't personally often think about trying to come up with um, <laughs> things for the chart. So the idea of working right. with somebody like Trevor Horn or whoever mm-hmm. isn't going to appeal to me because i just don't really feel under pressure to be commercial and luckily having had a record company all those years that allowed me absolutely free reign as as long as we were selling (laughs) you know tons of records they didn't care what i did right right okay that good i was curious now speaking of singles flying dale Flying Dale Flyer is the first single, my understanding, off of A. I was a little young back then, so I don't remember. But, I mean, are you? is that a song that's getting played on the radio? Did it chart? When you release a single at that period in your career, are you expecting a hit? Are you expecting that your loyal fans will find it? What are the expectations when you put out a song like Flying Dale Flyer? Skies tracking lightly from far down the line. No fanfare, just a blip on the screen. No quick conclusions now, everything will be fine. Short circuit glitch and not what it seems. Well, it's Filingdale, and Filingdales is an area in in Yorkshire in the UK where uh, there were situated some very conspicuous large radar domes, which was part of Britain's early warning system in the event of tracking nuclear missiles from uh, presumably Russia. And very much in tandem with the U.S., we were there to try and give early warning of, of a nuclear missile attack on the USA as well as the U.K., and so, as we all know, there are a number of little hiccups along the way. Quite often, somebody spotted something on the radar that turned out to be a technical glitch, but it nearly resulted in in the pressing of the red button and uh, a retaliatory strike being undertaken when, in fact, there was no threat at all. So, you know, we got close to a couple of nasty accidents that way in your country and in mine and and this was just a notional example of that you know that um how 
seeing something an anomaly on a on a radar screen you know would be uh, potentially quite a, a frightening moment for everybody concerned on the a album there are a lot of elements that have to do with that that time it, it we were absolutely at the height of the cold war then and it was something we we had to live with i mean i i lived about six miles away from a huge underground american base which was uh, built under some hills about 60 miles 50 60 miles to the west of london and um being built under the the chalk hills of the chiltern range of of hills it would have required at least a 10 megaton ground burst to seriously damage that and an air burst at 10,000 feet you know produce the maximum damage over the widest area Uh, but a ground burst will be targeting a very specific and usually underground situation the thing about a ground burst is it would it would throw thousands of tons of highly radioactive particulate matter into the air and would have far more damaging consequences in terms of the fallout plume extending in typical prevailing winds from the west right across london Mm. and so where we live we we were just about six miles to the west of that and if the wind had been blowing strongly enough it might have might have been enough to you know take all the windows in our house out and blow a few walls down but the the fallout plume would have been heading towards london not towards us and and we might have had time to get away but we might not if the wind had been blowing from the from the east or from the you know from another direction we we would have we would have been in the probably one of the worst places in the united kingdom to be situated in the event of a of a of a nuclear war and when, when, when you are aware of something to that degree, and of course there are many places in Britain that were potentially being a small island, we couldn't have all of our forces in Minutemen silos and scattered around the, you know, the, the, the prairies of the Midwest. Right. <laughs> we didn't, didn't have that luxury. Most of, our, most of our hard targets that the Russians knew full well exactly where they all were, um, they, they were in areas very close to heavily you know very dense populations and so it's it was something that in our little country you know we were very exposed in the event of nuclear war to um just be collateral damage and the even in a, a a precisely targeted hard target military action and you know you you live you live with that for years and years of your life that this is this is the world we're living in and at any time it can it can go horribly wrong and of yeah. course when Gorbachev came along with uh, Glasnost and Perestroika. It was an enormous sense of relief that things were beginning to move towards a serious de-escalation and the arms treaty that was signed and the subsequent loosening of the the reins in Russia allowed for cultural change to take place. In fact, it was during the brief time that Gorbachev was the man in charge that Jethro Tull and the Beatles became the first ever Western muse- music groups to be recognized and officially released on the Russian really? state record label Melodia Records. And nice. uh, that was in that was in 1977, 78. Wow. It was, um, so that, that, was a, that was a, you know, indicative of the kind of changes that gradually were helping to, to take away a lot of the tension which many of us had lived in from the 60s onwards, you know, from the Khrushchev era and the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis on the way, all the way through to... Uh, um gorbachev's rather westernized approach towards creating something much closer to a western democracy and of course it goes without saying that that is no longer the case and that um, vladimir putin's dictatorial style in in russia is is absolutely as far away as you can get from i mean it's much closer to stalin than uh yeah 
anything we could possibly call a democracy is it's, it is a, it is true. almost the antithesis of democracy but it masquerades as some curious form of democracy in the sense that there are elections and Vladimir Putin by hook or by crook will be elected again uh, I mean I don't think yeah. we'll hear Vladimir Vladimirovich whinging and moaning on Twitter saying the election was stolen <laughs> <laughs> Give me some votes. You know, it's not going to happen. No one's going to steal the election from oh, from him. No, they're not. Tell us about the jumpsuits. Everyone who thinks about the A album remembers the video of Aqualung that we, we you in the jumpsuit. I read the book, so I know some of the backstory. But real quickly, tell me about the jump, jumpsuits. Well, first of all, it's all my fault. I think the rest of the Is guys it? in the band were um, nonplussed at the idea of wearing a kind of a uniform, especially when it was a little bit space age and weird. And although we were all depicted in the white parachute silk jumpsuits in some photographs, they ditched theirs pretty damn fast and had versions made in, in colors made out of normal material that could be easily laundered. And as it turned out, did not become totally transparent halfway through the, the, uh, the concert when it was revealed that, uh, sweat and parachute silk do not, do not make happy bedfellows. Uh, it becomes, you know, I, I became see-through, uh, very quickly soaking with sweat and you could see, you know, you could see what I had for breakfast, frankly. <laughs> Great. Oh, I love it. Okay. Last question. And this is not related to A, but you made some news a year ago when you were on the Dan Rather show here about a health scare. And it all it went viral that you were like at death's door. And I remember seeing a response to that saying, no, it's not quite as big a deal. But of course, a response never gets the coverage that the, you know, the big hook does in the beginning. How is your health? Well, having been effectively locked down for 14 months, where are we now? 13 months since I last uh, performed on a stage, I have been, and, and in fact, I was, uh, it was, it was the last time I was actually ill with a bronchial problem was back in 2000 and it was April, 2019. Mm. And I was on holiday with my family for just a very three or four days in, in Venice and uh, and I was ill, really ill the whole time. I managed, you know, to kind of shake it off enough on the last day to get out of bed and cruise around a Venice canal or two. And but I, uh, that was the last time I was really ill. And since I was in my early twenties, I've frequently suffered from bronchial problems, um, catching colds which just don't go away. And it's just one of those one of those things, you know. I I would get maybe three or four bad colds a year, or even flu. When other people might only get one, you know, one winter cold or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you're traveling around and you're in airplanes and air conditioning and, and meeting people and have, uh, constantly, you know, constantly being close to to folks, if there's anything around, you're going to pick it up. I mean, to be fair, the, the band and crew used to pick up a lot of stuff because they would infect each other on the tour bus. You know, mm-hmm. they, were, they were being close proximity and if somebody got, a cold within four or five days, they'd all be coughing and sneezing right. and spluttering. If somebody got, uh, you know, any other kind of a uh, bacterial issue that they might spread through contact and dirty hands on bus doors or mm-hmm. whatever, then, you know, every, everybody ended up having gastroenteritis at the same time. <laughs> it was, it was worse for them because I, I've, I've never traveled on the bus. So I, I didn't experience that particular issue, but I would quite often, of course, being being on aeroplanes all the time, I would pick things up. And so I, I have traveled with a face mask in my hand luggage for, well, I mean, 15 years or something wow. in order to, to be able to try to minimize the, the, the risk of catching various viruses in particular. So for me, this situation we have today is not radically different to what i've been prepared for for quite a few years now and i got all the way through you know three three u.s tours in 2019 i didn't get sick at all i got through all the other dates from april onwards didn't get sick at all and of course 
I've been free of any kind of um, of those problems during all of 2020 and so far because I'm just never with anybody right. uh, without my wearing a face mask and I used various other uh, nasal sprays to uh, try to reduce viral infection, uh, in, in, in infection through the nasal passages and we don't really know if they help but I've been using nasal sprays and antiviral nasal sprays for quite a few years sure. and I now have a, a product that uh, was developed in Israel fairly recently which is actually a, a powder form of nasal oh. spray Sorry. which is very specifically developed in uh, in the context of coronavirus COVID-19 to dramatically reduce so they say the chances of being infected through breathing in through the nose the, the problem is of course that those of us who play a wind instrument do a lot of breathing through our mouths and so for me on stage i will be forced to breathe a lot of the time through my mouth um all well in fact really pretty much all of the time when i'm singing or playing the flute so um it's uh, I, I have to worry more about that at whatever time we go back on tour that you know i'd be more concerned about ventilation and and uh, more concerned concerned about air exchange and more concerned about proximity of an audience and you know for me to perform on a stage i will be the one unable to wear a face mask because of the nature of my job uh, whereas the audience if they feel you know concerned they can be using whatever prophylactic treatments like nasal <laughs> sprays and they can right. be using uh, you know wearing face masks and whatever it's uh, it's kind of easier for them but on the other hand they will be sitting um, almost touching each other if it's a, a sold-out venue, and uh, there will be a more separation for me, as there usually is, uh, being on a stage and being on a stage with a bunch of guys. I don't have to get that close to if I don't want to. So it's um, you know all of these things you've got to take into account as being part of the new world, and and hopefully my current state of health will not be exacerbated by returns to uh, more degrees of bronchial upset but you know that unfortunately i have an incurable disease called um well copd which is uh, is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease it is the family of diseases including emphysema mm -hmm. which comes usually from years of inhaling particulate matter or smoking cigarettes it could be or working in a coal mine um, in my case, I am really quite convinced that it's from not 50 years, but probably 40 years of working with a variety of so-called smoke machines on stage. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the early days, they, they did use, they, they would burn powder to create the smoke. Mm -hmm. These days, it is a, essentially, um, well, it, in fact, it's, it is exactly the same as as the the way in which vaping, you know, uh, electronic right, cigarettes sure. work. So it's it is that liquid which is heated and vaporizes into tiny droplets, on average about one micron in size, about the same as the small aerosol droplet transmission of COVID. So it's a very useful way of doing comparative tests of face masks and and um, the degree to which the s singing or playing the flute projects out in front of you. So um, vaping is, you know, m might have seemed pretty harmless when it first started. Of course, it's not. It, it, it does cause COPD if you, because you are, one way or another, you're causing inflammation of the lungs, the lungs, the alveoli, the tiny air sacs in the lungs start to become damaged and shrivel and you don't get the full air exchange so vaping is really really bad for your health mm -hmm. um, perhaps not as bad as cigarettes but frankly it's best not to do either you know i gave up smoking cigarettes 30 years ago okay. and uh, at that time i i was not aware of you know having any major problems from cigarette smoking but you know it was prudent to quit you know, the greater degree of problems I've had have been in the last, I would say, probably in the last 10 years that I've begun to notice my um, my capacity, my lung capacity, not being what it used to be. Having said that, I test myself on a regular basis by playing certain passages on the flute, which were always hard. And I know if I can still 
do those, mm -hmm. then I'm not too bad. So, mm -hmm. you know, my situation is far from being something that is um, threatening my profession, let alone my life. Right. But it's not going to get any better. It will only get worse progressively. And so I really have to be trying to uh, maximize on the the time that I have left and which is I, I guess been a philosophy for a long time since I was in my 20s I thought this can't go on forever one for one right. reason or another I am I am going to be out of work somewhere along the line and therefore I I should try and cram in as much as I can while I can still do it and that was my approach to touring and recording back back in uh, you know back in the 70s and it's 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 still to this day you know I, I i have still 65 concerts scheduled to take place this year although every week we end up pushing something further down the line or into 2022 um just because it's, it's not looking good and uh, in your country i suppose in in the usa things have been looking better as the vaccine program rolls out and they've been yeah a greater awareness of the wearing of face masks and so on so things have definitely got better but with new variants on the march there is every chance that things get get worse again in the usa only a fool would be booking any tours in the usa in 2021 although it's quite conceivable there could be some carefully organized summer concerts in open air right same thing here in europe it's possible there could be some outdoor shows take place in the uk and in europe Maybe even if things don't get bad again, you know, we could be able to do some indoor concerts in September. And uh, we have a, a UK tour booked, which I'm still hopeful may go yes. ahead. But, you know, think, things are looking pretty bad throughout Europe right now. And they, they are all on a third wave from yeah. pretty much every country. Ugh. Maybe the only other country of note that we regularly perform in is, is Spain, which is pretty much on an even keel about the same as the UK. But we have to put it in context that the, 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 the current rate of daily infections in the UK is 10 times what it was last July. At that point, things were getting relaxed and people thought, yeah, this is, un you know, lots of people were warning about a second wave later in the year. And of course it really came, it really, really came to happen. And, and, much worse than anybody anticipated or hoped for but yeah. nonetheless the, the current rates are 10 times as high as they were last summer and yeah. i don't you know we we've, we've got to we've got to see things coming down a long way and right right now they're stuck you know we are stuck at uh, at the level of around 50 to 55 rolling seven day average um per 100,000 people, that's our daily infection rate. It's been stuck there for the last two or three weeks. And we're not, it's not continuing to go down like it was in the six weeks before that. And in Europe, it's going the wrong way. It's going up for almost every European country. So think, things are looking pretty bleak right now. And I, I, would, uh, I would hazard a guess that although I think there will be some concerts this year, it's by no means going back to any kind of normal in 2021 right. if there are concerts they will be, have to be very carefully controlled and it's quite possible that things get cancelled at the last minute because local governments decide we've just gone beyond a certain threshold and they're going to have another lockdown or they're going to ban public gatherings again and you know to give you the example we flew to finland last uh, Last March, a year ago, we went to uh, to do a, a tour of Finland. We I checked, you know, with the promoter before we went to the airport to fly there, and everything was looking good. We got on the plane, arrived, got our bags, went checked into our hotel in Helsinki, and I got a call saying it's all cancelled. The, the government just had a meeting and decided to cancel all public gatherings. You know, that's how fast things can change. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we have to be prepared for disappointment but if we have learned anything in this last 12 months i think we have all in our very different ways but we have all learned to face the reality of disappointment and although we should continue to have <coughs> guarded optimism in our lives i think we've got to get used to further disappointments along the way 
And that is going to be the case for, I think, many years to come, that we will be living with with the coronavirus or its successors or variants of the current uh, COVID-19 virus. You know, this is not going away. This, there is no return to the old days, any more than as a return to the old days of airport security or lack of, you know, uh, or wearing a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Or in my country, the banning of handguns and, and a whole lot of other things. It's, it's done and dusty. We ain't going back there again. You know, it's not going to happen. And we have to get used to that idea. So um, the world changes and we have to learn to change along with it. And if we've learned anything from this pandemic, it is that we do have to have ultimately social and global responsibility for each other. And... Sure then do. we have to look at climate change. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. The <laughs> Which, list keeps um, going. You know, we're not we're not doing terribly well with um, good and sensible behaviour in regard no. to to coronavirus. No. <laughs> I, I, I I despair somewhat that we're ever going to come together on issues of climate change, given the yeah. hostility and the those who are simply the non-believers or who just yeah. put their own short-term affluence ahead of survivability for their their great-grandchildren it's um you know we are talking serious stuff it's not uh, it's not rocket science the way things have been headed and and the, the disbelievers are yeah. well you know same people who won't wear masks and they won't um, and they they won't have the vaccine you know i'm afraid no. they they do tend to sit in a certain social group not only in your country but elsewhere in the world you know there's okay. certain kind of people who just yeah. just don't want to face reality and right. uh, don't believe in reality what they do That's believe right. in unfortunately is the stuff they read on uh, on the most perfidious side of social media and um that's the the sad awful untruth about today's world is that social media are responsible for such a lot of bad stuff and yeah. encouraging bad people to do even more bad stuff so i personally have have been uh, very reluctant to use social media in a personal way. I, I, to me, it's a marketing tool. Yeah. It's something something you do because you've got to do it to sell records or promote tours. I have absolutely no contact with anybody on Facebook or Twitter. Mm-hmm. I do not do social media. Yeah. I pick up the phone. I talk to them over the... over the garden wall or whatever but i will not do it on on those media that i i certainly do not want to share things with people in in that kind of a way even if it's sharing it with one person you know i i i do a lot of emails and i you know occasionally will send text messages but you know facebook twitter and uh Many of these other things, whatever they're called, there yep. always seem to be a new one that is the hot favourite. All the time, but yeah. I just, uh, I don't find that for me they they act in any way in a positive direction, and they they encourage rash behaviour and sentiment to to be um, to be put in the public arena, and uh, I, I think most people who who use Twitter, but people in the public eye, you know. I can't imagine anybody hasn't said things they they regretted the next day, exactly. but by then it was too late. If uh, if you were someone well known, yeah, yeah. And then there are those that do it and don't regret it, like your ex president, oh. who uh, you know who just never seemed to learn the lesson. And uh, no, it'd be very yeah. interesting to see what his new personal social media platform is going to be like uh, that he um, will presumably use in order to mount some attempt to be able to try for a second term in four years i feel like we we invited a fox in our hen house and it won't go away and uh we were a quiet we not we've never been great or super peaceful but we didn't have this level of toxicity and we allowed this guy for personal gain to come into our world and he's messed everything up and uh the chemtrails of his existence are going to last forever like you were saying about coronavirus not going away tomorrow and uh i just think how did we do this to ourselves how did we invite this into our lives it's horrible i can't well, get past it, it, it you know the rest of the world looked on i mean if you remember when uh, obama was elected there was a well, perhaps you didn't because you weren't outside the usa but obama on election day 
this was a he was a president for the world not just for the usa he was yeah. seen as being something new something positive something vibrant you know had a the age on his side he was youthful vigorous he, you know he he was really being seen in a very very positive way throughout the world yeah. uh, perhaps not in russia but but pretty much everywhere else to begin with people had such high hopes of obama sadly that over the period of, of his uh, his his period of office it it, it generally dropped away mm-hmm. but by the by the time that it became apparent that Trump was actually being taken seriously and that Hillary Clinton, who I don't think was ever terribly popular outside no. half of America, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it began to look worryingly like Trump was in with the chance and, and the rest of us were absolutely aghast. How, how did it get this far? How did the, the grand old party fall for this buffoon who has no more allegiance to uh, any political system than you know my left toe you know it's yeah. um he's it's absolutely self-serving uh, he, he used the republican party and and has, has has divided the nation and even i suppose reinforced the the uh, the dark divisions within the republican party in, in a way that we just just horrific and, and we were just utterly amazed that he would manage to get people to go along with him it, it, it was just staggering we were absolutely deeply shocked in the run-up to the election that it got that far could, could not think well, what on earth are our good buddies the the good old folks of the usa what is in their minds that they've allowed this man to get this far let alone you know to actually uh, do the the impossible of voting him in, albeit by a small margin, but then he only lost by a small margin uh, a few, you know, a yeah. few short months ago. He did. Anyway, but not my, not my job to pontificate about American politics. Who knows, one day I may need a U.S. <laughs> visa again. So, and right, 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 right now, I, 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 our Russian tour was postponed from early this year into oh. early next year so i also have to be careful what i say about yeah, vladimir well. vladimirovich <laughs> <laughs> because i, well, I could you. lose more than my russian visa understood <laughs> well thank you ian for talking with me you always bring so much interesting conversation and we always get into all these different areas that i hadn't even thought about or planned for thank you for talking with me again okay good to talk to you too take care have a good one bye-bye Cheers. bye-bye now. All right, there you go. The great Ian Anderson. Uh, we're just, we're so lucky that Ian gives us some of his time. Um, we want to close it out with one more song off of A, The Pine Martin's Jig. This one might be my favorite on the album. It's the most kind of in keeping with the previous era's Jethro Tull, to me anyway, of keeping, of part prog rock, but part, you know, Elizabethan folk merriment. Anyway, <laughs> there's just nothing like Jethro Tull. All right, so check out Silent Singing. The link is in the description of the show right here. And then check out the 40th anniversary of A. I believe it's out now. And they were kind enough to send me a copy of it. It has uh, the album remastered by Stephen Wilson and a two-disc live concert from the era. Okay? It's fantastic. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.